Thanks so much, uh, Brother Dave Rodebach. And Brother Monroe, I never knew you'd say. We, we get to learn a lot of things around here, don't we? I told you that afternoon, we, we just learn a lot of things in the Badger Conference, and see, I learned something else, too. I might just say that our brother Ralph Monroe, along with Brother Frank Peters, have been interviewed uh, today for licensing under the BBF, and uh, they will receive their license certificates tomorrow evening in the evening service at 7.30, tomorrow night. Some of the brethren in the front row were threatening they would have sleep on me because they ate so much downstairs. <laughs> I said, if you do, I'll do what the preacher did when I was a boy. I, uh, this is about all I remember about some of those early days when I was just uh, being brought to church. We had a preacher that used to talk very soft, you know, for minutes. Uh, some of the farmers would come in uh, from out of the field and uh, they'd come in and the minute they hit that warm air, they went right to sleep. And they were sleeping all over the audience and so he'd talk real soft and it just put them right to sleep. And then he'd say, Yay! <laughs> well, they woke up in a hurry then. <laughs> so if I see anybody sleeping in the front row, I'm going to do that. Uh, other men were scheduled to speak at this hour, and uh, I am the third choice. So. <laughs> We hear a lot about pinch hitters, you know, in the uh, ball games that are going on these days. Some of us enjoy a ball game occasionally. And uh, I said to some of the brethren, I hope the pinch hitter doesn't strike out. <laughs> we uh, are happy to be here again, and I'm so glad to have so many of our friends who we met at the BBS conference here. I said to one of our brethren here, I hope he can go to, he said he's going to go to the conference next year, the Lord willing. I uh, certainly hope that some of you who have never been to a BBS conference would uh, take us serious when we invite you to come and see what a blessed week we have together. Some of the most wonderful fellowship you could have anywhere. And I was just telling him that uh, we have folks come from isolated places, and uh, uh, they never hear the gospel of grace except by tape or by literature uh, in the churches they attend. And so uh, coming to the BBR Congress is like an oasis. I tell our people in Denver that they should be very thankful that they can go to a church where the gospel of grace and the distinctive Pauline revelation is preached. Sometimes people come in and they say, I don't know what it is about this church. There's something different about it. Well, it isn't the preaching, but it is the glorious message that we proclaim. And a lot of times people don't know what it is, but it blesses their hearts and they begin to see a little light. And of course, it's the message of the gospel of grace that the Holy Spirit blesses. And so uh, it's a real delight to meet many folk who we don't 
get a chance to meet at other times because they're not attending one of the great churches around the country. So you folks who come here to Gardner, you just thank the Lord for the ministry here. Uh, my friend Mrs. Manley, whom we've learned to know through her daughter who was in Denver. Mrs. Manley comes quite a long ways to come to church here, and I understand there's some others of you that come a long ways to come here too. And I know you thank the Lord for the ministry here of our brother Thurman. And uh, I just trust that you'll support him with everything you have. And uh, for the glory of God, you're not worshiping Pastor Thurman, but you are standing behind him in his effort to preach the gospel of grace and the word rightly divided here. So uh, it's an encouragement for us to be here, brother. And like I said to one of your men, and uh, Mr. Sam and I were talking about it, isn't it wonderful? Every time we come here, we uh, notice uh, improvements in the building and the equipment and everything. You know, when you were here three years ago, there wasn't any air conditioning in here. And some of us who are uh, used to natural air conditioning, I won't say where, we <laughs> uh, really appreciate this. Wonderful. And, you know, I said to a brother Noble that, uh, you know, uh, sometimes people think that the only uh, evidence of the Lord's blessing is to have a, a lot of people who have professed salvation. That isn't always uh, uh, a criterion. Certainly the Lord blesses his word, and there are souls that are saved, but the fact that the Lord blesses the uh, material part of the ministry and uh, uh, your building and equipment and... Uh, uh, I understand that it isn't always easy to keep things nice around here because of the neighborhood. But the Lord has preserved it, and it's here, and it's lovely. I just came in here, and I thought, my, what a, what a lovely place to meet. And I just wish I had your pews, brother. I broke the Ten Commandments, and I looked at those pews. <laughs> we don't have pews in our assembly. But I, I tell you, I, I just wish we had them, and we're going to be hoping to have them. And I thought as I came in again this time, what a lovely, nice auditorium to meet in. And uh, I again want to commend our brethren of the board and the men who stand behind the ministry here. I know that uh, it wouldn't be possible except that there are some people who are really interested in the gospel of grace. All right, enough backslapping. And I, don't, I say that sincerely. I'm not, uh, I'm not just uh, talking. I really mean that. And uh, I just want you to know how much I appreciate it as an outsider coming here. Well, in keeping with the theme for this week, which, as you know, is the believer's warfare in all of our daytime sessions, and I wish we could invite all of you ladies. You know, we have one lady that called, <laughs> I won't tell you where she was from, she wanted to come to the pastor's conference. Now, we have no lady pastors in the BBS. And, uh, but she thought she could have some fellowship with some of the ladies, but it wasn't possible to make any definite plans of any special meetings, but uh, she wanted to come very badly. She called uh, uh, her, our brother Dave, she called me, and I told her to call the tournament. <laughs> we kept passing the buck around, you know. And uh, uh, she would love, love to come, and I, uh, and I would encourage some of the pastors' wives to come if we could have a little meeting for them especially, but we can't uh, ask you to join the pastors in the daytime session, but we're having a good time of fellowship. And uh, some of the laymen have been with us too, and we're glad to have you here. I trust that we'll have a great 
day tomorrow, the Lord willing. But now, in keeping with the theme, we decided that we should share with you some thoughts from Ephesians 6. Let's turn there, please. Ephesians 6, which is a very familiar portion of Scripture and one on which the theme was based. Starting with verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. For on the whole armor of God, that he may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For well, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. You notice the Schofield margin says, world rulers of this darkness against spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies, is the word there. You know, you don't think of wickedness being spiritual, do you, as a rule? Spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, or resist, the revised says, resist in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins good about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, or over all, taking the shield of the faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We'll end our reading there. I have titled this The Conflict of Grace. We rejoice in the grace of God and rightly so. But not often do we recognize that there is a conflict of grace. In fact, not everyone who names the name of Christ is even aware of this warfare. I believe that only spirit-controlled believers are encountering opposition in their Christian lives, especially is this so about those who are trying to get the message out to others? Whether it be by the spoken word, by literature, or any other method to get the word out, the message out that we're talking about. And of course the reason for this unrelenting attack of the enemy against true believers is because of their relationship to God. The fiery darts of the enemy, and we'll tell you who the enemy is shortly, are aimed at the divine person who indwells the believer. I think sometimes we think that, that the enemy is attacking us. The enemy's opposition is directed at the one who indwells every true believer. The Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit 
who lives in every child of God's heart. In our study tonight, we'd like to look at the believer's enemies, which this is an obvious division, of course. The believer's enemies and the believer's armor. That's not hard to remember. First of all, the believer's enemies. We are told about them in verse 11 and 12. The wiles of the devil. First of all, that would be able to say that uh, the enemies that the believer has is not flesh and blood. We often think of our enemies as being people, but they are simply the tools of the evil one. Our enemies are spiritual enemies. Our arch enemy is the, is the devil or Satan himself, verse 11. Now he has many names as the scripture indicates, as we all know. And this, these names all describe his character and his sphere of operations. He's called the dragon, the serpent, the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, and the god of this age. And of course, many more names, but these are the main ones. In our text, we read about the wiles of the devil. This word translated wiles is an interesting word. It's the word from which we get our English word method. It's used in chapter 4, 14. Turn back a page and look with me at verse 14 of chapter 4, Ephesians. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carry about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. One of the revisions says deceitful scheming. That's Satan's method, deceitful scheming. And these are the methods which the evil one uses against God's people, directed, of course, at the one who indwells the child of God. He is far too clever for any of us to combat in the strength we have of ourselves. We know that. And every time when we resort to our own strength, we are defeated, aren't we? Satan's methods of opposition to God began in heaven when, as recorded in Isaiah 14, he said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, five times. And he sought to exalt himself above God himself in heaven. Now, we all know that. And we also know that Satan was cast out of heaven and he was uh, brought down to the earth and he's been operating here in uh, the hearts of men ever since when he deceived Adam and Eve first and then brought the whole human race into sin. And of course he'll continue his methods of deception throughout the remaining years, maybe not years, maybe only months or even weeks, 
I talk to believers all the time, and many have said to me, can it go on much longer? To some of us, it seems like it must be very close. I'm talking about the Lord's coming. And Satan will do his very utmost to deceive the brethren and deceive the ungodly. And uh, he's making a last-ditch effort before the rapture. You can be sure of that. But since Satan is neither omniscient nor omnipotent nor omnipresent, he has to have a lot of helpers. I've said to our people in Denver that uh, Satan cannot be in more than one place at a time. But he has many emissaries who do his bidding. And of course, these are spoken of in verse 12. Ephesians 6, 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And here these enemies, these helpers of Satan are called principalities, powers, and world rulers of this darkness. Principalities have to do with governments. Did you know that there are spiritual governments in Satan's realm? Oh, I think that the wicked rulers of this world, and we got plenty of them, haven't we, are certainly being used by Satan. And, a, and the Lord is allowing him for a purpose, working out his plan and purpose in the world. But here it's speaking of spiritual enemies. They are wicked spirits, we believe, or demons. And demons are everywhere. Now, demons are not down on skid row. I think that a lot of believers have gotten the idea that Satan operates and his helpers operate down in those uh, uh, places of iniquity. And uh, among people that uh, are in the gutter, as it were. But I think Satan, I don't know if he's been here, but I'm sure he sent some of his demons here. We have them in Denver. And I think every place where the gospel of grace and the truth is proclaimed, the demons are there to snatch the seed of the word from people's hearts. And I think that every, every conference we have and every time we get together around the scriptures, demons would seek to take away the truth and keep us thinking about other things. You ever sit in church and look right at the preacher and you... The preacher knows that your mind is a hundred miles away, maybe a thousand miles away. I said that to our people, and I think that's true, Brother Thurman. Uh, people can look right at you, and they're not hearing a thing you're saying. And we have to discipline ourselves if we're going to pay attention. Well, otherwise, the demons will snatch the truth away from our hearts. You know, the devil and his enemy and his helpers can't take away our salvation. No way they can do that, but they can sure wreck our lives. They can sure wreck our testimony. They can sure ruin our ministry. As uh, you know, the BBF board has been meeting here last night again this morning, 
And we have one more meeting tomorrow noon, brethren. Don't forget that one. And uh, we were just saying that Satan would like to just close up any testimony that stands for the truth. He'd like to shut our mouths, and he'd like to put us out of business if he could. And I think that any local assembly like Gardenville Community Church or any of our churches, any testimony that's getting out the gospel of grace and the word rightly divided will be attacked. And if Satan doesn't come himself, he'll send some of his helpers. These are the principalities, the powers, and world rulers of this darkness. Together they comprise the spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. As we said, it's very evident that these enemies are demons. Now, uh, demons are great in number. In the uh, Gospel according to Mark, Mark 5, 9 and Luke 8, 30, they are referred to as legion. You remember the demon-possessed man of Gadara? When uh, he was addressed by the Lord, the demon said, we are legion. And in the King James Version, it's capitalized. That's the demon's name, because there are so many. And uh, you can be certain that demons are here tonight to take the seed of the gospel from your heart. Believers wrestle with these evil spirits. You know, it's difficult for some to see how the apostle changes the uh, comparison here from uh, a soldier in armor, metal armor, heavy metal armor, to a wrestler. Now, certainly wrestlers do not put on a suit of armor when they wrestle. Wrestling matches that I've seen, they wear as little as possible. But there's a reason for using the terminology here. We wrestle. Wrestling suggests very close contact. It suggests personal combat. And uh, when he says we wrestle, we are in close personal combat with evil spirits continually. If we are yielded believers, and especially so if we're getting out the gospel to others. And as we said, they operate in the spiritual realm. In 2 Corinthians 11, 14, we read that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. And then the apostle goes on to say, it's, if Satan does that, it's no small wonder that his ministers also do the same thing. We are dwelling on some of these uh, enemies of the gospel in our daytime sessions. And certainly every believer, whether he's a pastor or a layman or a teacher, whatever, if he loves the Lord and if he's getting out the truth, you can be certain that he's having a wrestling match with evil spirits. And the pastors in this room I'm sure know what I'm speaking of. It's not a physical battle. 
It's a spiritual battle. And you know, if we didn't have on the armor, we'd be defeated every time. We read about demon influence in the last days, uh, familiar portion in 1 Timothy. Let's look at it for a moment. 1 Timothy 4, 1. The apostle is writing to the young pastor and telling him about some of the conditions in the latter times, as the King James suggests here. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, verse 1 of 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from thee faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Uh, that is one area where I would have to say that the King James uh, mistranslated the word. Um, we know there's only one devil, but there are multitudes of demons, and the word should be demons, as you know. Anyway, this is one of the evidences of the last days. And he goes on to talk about this in the third chapter of 2 Timothy. Uh, we read again about demons. Uh, verse 1 of 2 Timothy Verse, or, uh, chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Uh, the same word is translated perilous here. It's translated exceeding fierce over in Matthew 8, 28. Speaking of the uh, demon-possessed man of Gadara that I re just referred to. So one of the evidences of Satan's operation in the last days will be a special emphasis upon demon activity. I have often said that I believe that um, those in insane asylums, many of them, are demon-possessed. They are violent and they do some of the most terrible things. I don't think that a true believer could be demon-possessed. That's my personal view. I'm sure many of you agree with me. Because the Holy Spirit and a demon cannot live in the same body. However, unsaved people many times are demon-possessed. How else could you explain the terrible crimes that are committed in our day? You've been reading in the paper, haven't you, about some of the things that's been going on. Uh, you read the article about uh, uh, the young men down, uh, where was that, down south, in Texas, wasn't it? Where, was it, 27 were murdered? You saw that in the paper. Uh, a short time ago, a man in California killed 25, wasn't it, uh, Mexican nationals that worked for him killed them all and buried them in shallow graves. And, and people, I, talk, I have Christian people ask me, how come anything like that could go on? The answer, of course, is that these are demon-possessed. I think that's the answer. Demon-possessed people, and they're, they're all around. And uh, as we near the rapture and the Lord's coming, we're going to have more and more of that kind of thing. And demon influence and demon possession will become more and more evident according to these passages which the apostle writes to young Timothy. 
Since the believer cannot fight the battle, cannot wrestle with demons and uh, Satan's emissaries in his own strength and be victorious, our God has provided a means of victory. And that's what we want to stress in the closing minutes of this message tonight. The believer's armor, verses 13 to 17. Here the figure changes from the wrestling match to a soldier in armor, prepared to meet the enemy. He has on the whole armor of God, and as most of us, the pastors know, and maybe many of the rest of you know, the word translated whole armor there is one word in the original, is panoply, and it simply means a complete suit of armor. You can't have just a part of the armor. Either you have the armor or you don't. It's just like the fruit of the Spirit. I think we have the same analogy there. The fruit of the Spirit, as related to us in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, is not nine different kinds of fruit. It's one fruit and nine aspects of the one fruit. The fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. Well, the suit of armor that the apostle is speaking about here, I think, is the same kind of an, an, an analogy. You can't have a, just a part of the armor. Either you have all of it or you don't have any of it. And uh, every true believer, if he's going to be able to be victorious over Satan and his wiles, his methods, is going to have to have on this suit of armor. Let's look at it in detail. Each, and by the way, there are six pieces of armor. Six is the number, as many of you know, for, for man in Scripture. Uh, it has to do with man on the earth, especially. Man in this life. Six. Some of you have read uh, E.W. Bullinger's excellent book on number in Scripture. We have it on our book display all the time in Denver. And he has some excellent truths there, and it's been a great blessing to my own heart. In fact, uh, we have borrowed some of his outlines in, in presenting this to our own people. And there are six pieces to this armor, but it's one armor. Each piece of the armor is personified by the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll look at them in detail now. First of all, the girdle of truth. Immediately I thought of John 14, 6, where the Lord said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, I know that that's in the gospel according to John, but that's an interdispensational truth. That's a principle. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the truth. The breastplate of righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30, let's turn to it. We've read this many, many times. 
where the Apostle Paul by the Spirit tells us that Christ is made unto us as believers wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And so he is our righteousness. One of my favorite salvation verses, and I teach it to our boys and girls and young people and all the grown-ups too, is 2 Corinthians 5.21. I think that's the greatest salvation verse in the Bible. Now, I don't think that maybe we should say that one verse is greater than another, and yet there are some verses that kind of stand out to us, don't they? And that one has been such a blessing to me, and I have just measured on the truth. For he hath made him, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, the Lord Jesus Christ who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. My, think of the truth in that great verse. Christ is our righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness that protects the vital organs, the breastplate of righteousness. Immediately I thought of Romans 5, 1. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To be justified means to be declared righteous, and we're not righteous till we have God's righteousness in Christ. Many people think that salvation is just having your sins forgiven. Are you listening now? Too many people think that when you're saved, you have your sins forgiven, and that's it. I thought that for years. And what a, what a blessing it was to me to see that not only are my sins forgiven, that's blessedly true, but I'm given the righteousness of God. I'm just as righteous as Christ himself. Pastor O'Hare used to preach a message on the two spotless Christs. Some people wondered about that. They thought there was only one Christ, but there are two the body of Christ, and we are Christ in God's sight. Isn't that blessed? How that rejoices my heart. The greaves of peace, now that word isn't found here in our text in Ephesians 6. Uh, greaves, I should explain, was a protection that the soldier wore over his feet and his ankles, and they were called greaves. Now, this protection was called in our text in Ephesians 6, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. These protective this protective part of the armor for our feet will make it possible for us to go where the Lord wants us to go. That's as what I see here. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Our feet take us places, don't they? 
Sometimes they take us to the wrong places. They ought to take us to the right places. You know what I mean. How important that we have on the greaves of peace that we can bring this glorious message to others. And of course I thought of what the apostle wrote in Ephesians 2.14 where he says, He is our peace, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our peace. The shield of faith, and it's the shield of the faith. Now I know this isn't true always where the definite article appears, and I think most of us know, don't we, that uh, oftentimes the translators have omitted the definite article where it should be. I agree with our brother Russ Miller. I enjoy uh, uh, studying Englishman's Greek concordance. I don't claim to be a Greek student, and you never hear me say any Greek words. Like one brother says, I know a little Greek. He runs a restaurant on the corner. And that's about the only Greek I know. But let me tell you that the great truth which the apostle is pointing out here is the fact that we are to take the shield of the faith. Englishman Concordant points the definite article out where it should be and where it shouldn't be. Sometimes the translators have put them in, put the article in where it shouldn't be. Sometimes they've left it out where it should be, which of course is the uh, failures of men. But uh, we can't blame the Holy Spirit for that. But the faith suggests to me something which we see in the Pauline epistles very often when the apostle uses the term the faith. He is talking about that specific revelation given to him by the glorified Lord in heaven. The faith. Now I know it talks about, it, it's referring to the principle of faith sometimes also. The context usually tells you which. But in this case, where we read about taking the shield of the faith, taking the shield of God's message for this age, for this day, the message first revealed to the Apostle Paul and in turn to those who worked with him and in turn to every one of us who are members of the body of Christ. The shield of the faith, it will ward off all the satanic attacks, I'll tell you. When I think of all the people that are deceived by the cults and by false teaching, which is everywhere, I realize that some people are not having on the shield of faith. It says here that the shield of faith is able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And we believe that this glorious message, the gospel of grace, the distinctive Pauline revelation, which we love so much, is that message which will ward off every attack of Satan. And we better have on the shield of faith. He speaks about the helmet. Well, I should say that in connection with faith, Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Christ is the author and finisher of the faith. And he is. 
the helmet of salvation. This, of course, is protection for the head and for the mind. How often the Apostle Paul speaks about a change of mind and the importance of having our mind be like Christ. And when we have on the helmet of salvation, it protects our head and our mind. Acts 4.12, where the Apostle Peter says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's, there's an interdispensational truth again. That's just as true today as it was when Peter said it to the Pentecostal listeners at that time. And the last part of the armor is referred to as the sword of the Spirit. This is, by the way, the only offensive part of the armor, uh, which, and he tells us what that sword is. He says, which is the word of God. In beginning, John 1, 12, or John 1, uh, 1, 1, 1, and 2, I should say. In beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the Word. He's the living Word. We have here the written Word. But Christ is the living Word. And so we see that all of these pieces of the armor which we are told to put on in the warfare with Satan and his helpers personifies the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why the Apostle in Romans 13, 12 to 14, tells us about the fact that as believers and as those who are living in the last days, we ought to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me, please, to Romans 13. Romans 13. Maybe we ought to read a little of the context. Verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. You know, many people think that uh, <coughs> night is coming when no man can work, because that's what the song says. Work, for the night is coming. Ever hear it? We never sing it around our place, because it isn't the truth. Why? The night isn't coming, we're, we're in the night. But we are the children of the day, you see. But the night is here. We're not going to work because the night is coming. It's here. We're waiting for the day when the Lord comes. That'll be the day, you see. And so he says, the night is far spent. This was written to members of the body of Christ. The night is far spent. The day is at hand, coming soon. And that's just as appropriate for the, those to whom the apostle wrote as it is for us right now. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Oh, 
the demons and all of Satan's helpers are seeking to trap us, entrap us, and uh, cause us to be defeated and unvictorious in our lives as God's people. Cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. And now look at verse 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. He was writing to believers. And believers are told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The very same thing we have in Ephesians 6, I believe. Put ye on the whole armor of God. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you do that? You're clothed in him. We are to recognize that we died when Christ died. Are you following me now? The old nature didn't die. We were interviewing our brethren for licensing and we brought that up. I think a lot of believers are a little foggy in this area and they kind of have a half an idea that possibly the old nature was nailed to the cross and the old nature died but uh, our experience tells us otherwise. And I want to add the scripture tells us otherwise too. It doesn't say that the old nature died, it says the old man died. And I believe that the old man and the old nature are not the same. I like what uh, Dr. Kenneth Weist, beloved brothers with the Lord now, I sat in his classes at Moody Bible Institute many years ago. I like his book on Romans because of the things he says in Romans 6. He says that Romans 6 is talking about the baptism of the Spirit. Now many dear people write to, try to read water into that passage and of course nullify the whole truth that the Apostle is talking about. They fail to see that the Apostle there is referring to our identification with Christ in his death in his burial, in his resurrection. When we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we by faith appropriate the fact that we died with Christ, we were buried with him, and we rose with him. The old man, the person that I was before I was saved, was nailed to the cross. The old Wim Johnson dead and gone. Why should I dig him out of the grave anymore and carry him around? I'm ashamed of him. The rest of this message is on side two. Please turn your tape over at this point. And the Lord wants me to, by faith, keep him in the grave. All the old nature cannot operate on the new man. The old sin nature is still with us, and you haven't lost it, even though some may think they have. We still have it. It's the old man that died. The old person that I was before I was saved. Controlled by the sin nature. That old man died. 
and the new man has come out of the grave. That's what Romans 6 teaches. And when you and I as believers recognize that blessed fact, and I venture to say that there are too many of God's people, even some great people who don't see the truth here, and they're living defeated lives. Satan entraps them time and again, and they're defeated. I, I've talked to some in our own church, and I've sat down by the hour going over the truth in Romans 6 with them, because I know that's the, at the bottom of their problem. They say, why do I know that I shouldn't do this, and yet I go ahead and do it? Just like Paul said in Romans 7. And I turn right back to Romans 6. And I think that's what the apostle is referring to when he says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognize our identification with him. And when we're clothed in him, the new man that came out of the grave when we were saved will be the victorious one. And we will be enjoying that blessed fellowship with the Lord, unbroken by Satan's wiles. We as members of the body of Christ are to reckon this to be so by faith. Oh, I remember a number of years ago when I picked up a book that suggested that we need to die daily. And really, a lot of people are trying to do that. They're trying to die daily. And they take a verse out of context where Paul says, I die daily, isn't talking about his spiritual death, talking about his danger in, in being in danger of physical death. But they use that and apply it spiritually, and they say that you, the way to have victory is to die daily. I'll tell you, we're to recognize that when Christ died, we as believers in the finished work of Christ died also. We died with him. That's the death we're to recognize. Not something we're to do day after day after day, but we're to, by faith, apply that blessed fact to our lives. And as we daily appropriate that and put on the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole armor of God, we'll experience spiritual victory. I'm sure that there is no other way. And I trust that if I've been talking to someone here who is a believer and you've been saved, maybe for some time, but you've been very ineffective in the Lord's work, maybe you have desired to be a help to Pastor Thurman or your pastor, wherever he may be, but you've been defeated again and again. And you've been very ineffective. Your testimony hasn't been what it should. You don't enjoy the scriptures. You don't enjoy the praise. And you're walking afar off from the Lord, even though you're saved. Let's obey the injunction of the apostle. 
Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the whole armor of God. Be clothed in him. Recognize your identification with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And recognize that the new man has come out of the grave and you're to live for him. How wonderful to see this. And if someone is here who's unsaved, you've never believed the gospel for yourself, I wouldn't tell you something to do. Uh, like Mr. Sam says, if you had to do that much to be saved, it wouldn't be by grace. If you had to wiggle your fingers that much to be saved, is something you do. But there's anything you and I can do because the Lord Jesus Christ did it all. I say this every Sunday, no matter what I'm preaching on, I always end up this way. And I tell our folks, Christ did it all. There's nothing you can do. Will you appropriate that blessed fact by faith? You can do it right in your seat, right now. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or come forward or walk down the aisle or say a prayer or anything else. There isn't a thing you can do. Christ did it all. And you know, that kind of disarms people who want to do something. When you tell them you can't do a thing, there's no, there's no thing you can do. You need to simply believe the gospel by faith. And that's not a work. Faith cometh by hearing the word of God. And you know, if there's unsaved people in this room, and I don't know all of you, see, so I, I really don't know, but the Lord knows. Uh, it wasn't any uh, accident that you got here tonight. I'm sure that the Lord brought you here and maybe brings you here Sunday after Sunday so you hear the gospel and you're drawn to tune in the radio and hear Mr. Sam on the broadcast here. There's a reason for that, isn't there? The Lord is drawing you. Oh, I trust you. Trust the Savior if you're unsaved. Believe the gospel right now that you're the sinner for whom Christ died and trust him yourself. Let's bow in a moment of prayer. Our Father, how thankful we are for these minutes spent together in the scriptures. We pray for this fine audience. We thank thee for the attentive listening and we pray that the Holy Spirit may do that which we cannot do. We uh, pray especially for those who love the Lord and who are saved, but who've been defeated because they have never put on the whole armor of God. They've never appropriated by faith their identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. They've never made it their own. We pray that it may be true beginning right tonight. We pray that anyone who may be unsaved who has come to our service, we thank you that they're here, and we pray that they may see themselves as the sinner for whom Christ died. And may they believe the gospel and pass out of death into life. We commit the result to thee, and we thank thee in the Savior's name. Amen.